We all know that even doctors make mistakes. But what if the same mistake happens not once, not twice, but 20 times? At what point does a pattern of accidents start to seem problematic? Now imagine that this is one of the most celebrated surgeons in the world, revered by his colleagues, adored by the media, trusted wholeheartedly by his sick patients. How many accidents would it take before you became suspicious? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. From WikiLeaks whistleblower Chelsea Manning to the man who uncovered the shocking truth behind the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. In this episode, we tell the story of Oscar Siemensen, the whistleblower who turned his life upside down to save his patients. This is a story that shook the entire medical profession, a story that even the Pope, Elton John, and the Obamas were unwittingly dragged into. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to The Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Claudia Castillo had a cough that wouldn't go away. She was trying to play football with her son Johan and toddler Isabella in the park near their Barcelona home. But she kept having to stop, bent double, gasping for air. The brunette, originally from Colombia, was usually full of life and laughter, with a love of Latin dance clubs. These days, though, she was feeling far older than her 26 years. Not for the first time, she had to drag the kids home from the park early. Her coughing fits came at the worst times, in the grocery store, at work, while she cooked for her children. They left her barely able to eat, let alone get out of bed. But Claudia's doctors couldn't work out what was wrong. After months of searching, Claudia finally received a diagnosis. She had a rare form of tuberculosis, and unfortunately for Claudia, her doctors had taken a little too long to diagnose her. By the time they knew which drugs to give her, the infection had seriously damaged her windpipe, also known as the trachea. It was then that she was introduced to a surgeon named Paolo Macchiarini. With his salt and pepper hair, George Clooney looks, and calming Italian accent, Claudia trusted him immediately. Over the next few months, the two became friends, as this charming surgeon performed several surgeries on Claudia, trying to repair her airways. At times, there were signs of improvement, but nothing seemed to help for long. By Christmas 2007, she was back in hospital in Barcelona, with Paolo at her bedside. He explained that Claudia's airways had become dangerously narrow, so he had to take action now. He laid out two options for her. They could completely remove her left lung, which would affect her quality of life forever, or try out an experimental new surgery he was developing. If it worked, Claudia could keep both lungs, make a full recovery, and help revolutionize medicine by solving its biggest problem. 
Paolo told Claudia he wanted to remove her damaged trachea and replace it with one from a donor. No doctor had ever been able to do this procedure before, mainly because the trachea is a very delicate organ with a complicated blood supply system that makes it near impossible to transplant. But Paolo had a plan to make it possible. He was going to harness the power of stem cells. Stem cells are the body's building blocks. They can shapeshift into a variety of other useful cells and can sometimes help fix damaged tissues in the body. Certain stem cell treatments are commonplace. You've probably heard of bone marrow transplants, for example. But other stem cell technologies are more controversial. While some doctors think they're the key to the future of medicine and everlasting life, others are more skeptical. Paolo's plan was to harvest stem cells from Claudia and infuse them into the donated trachea. He theorized that Claudia's body would recognize her own stem cells in the new trachea and welcome them in, helping to fuse the organ into her body. In fact, he was so confident in his theory that he believed she wouldn't need the cocktail of drugs that transplant patients usually have to take after surgery. Drugs which had horrible, long-term side effects. Paolo's procedure would be the first of its kind, and he believed the first of many. He had a hunch that stem cells could solve a lot of the issues surrounding transplants and wanted to prove it. If the surgery on Claudia and her trachea worked, it could be tried out on implants in other parts of the body. This new process would be far safer and more effective. People could have as many transplants as they needed without the life-changing side effects of the drugs. Everyone would live longer, healthier lives, all thanks to this miraculous new treatment. But for Claudia, it just meant she had a risky decision to make. Realizing she would need some convincing, Paolo asked her an unexpected question. Would you like to see the pigs? Paolo led Claudia slowly out of her room. He guided her down a corridor and through one of the back doors of the hospital. There, in an open, outdoor space, was a small sty. As they got closer, Claudia's jaw dropped. She thought Paolo was joking when he told her he'd been experimenting on four pigs. And yet, here they were, not in a laboratory, but happily snuffling among bales of straw. As she petted them, running her fingers along their bristly backs, she could feel raised scars, signs, she assumed, that they'd had the surgery Paolo was urging her to have. Mind made up, Claudia walked unsteadily back to her hospital bed. Within a few weeks, she was being wheeled into the operating theater. Five hours later, Paolo Macchiarini entered the waiting room where Claudia's family sat, desperate for news. The operation had been a triumph. Paolo had successfully performed the world's first stem cell transplant. When Claudia walked out of the hospital just days later, smiling and waving, Paolo's face was splashed across papers all over the world. While Claudia was quietly recovering at home, Paolo's phone was ringing off the hook with interview requests and job offers. Claudia became Paolo's poster child, a shining example of his genius. But behind closed doors, things weren't quite what they seemed.
Now, back to the story. Paolo Macchiarini was riding high. All over the world, people were talking about his groundbreaking surgery on Claudia Castillo, surgery that seemed to have transformed the young mother's life and opened up countless possibilities for the future of stem cell research. People were even saying that Paolo's work had the whiff of a Nobel Prize about it. Paolo went on to repeat the surgery on more patients. Each time, it was a risk. The technology was new, and Paolo had to use a loophole in medical ethics to perform the operation, a loophole called compassionate use. This allows doctors to give experimental treatment to patients for whom there is no hope, essentially making them living test subjects. The idea is that in their last days, they are able to contribute to the improvement of medicine. One such case seemed to be 10-year-old Kieran Lynch from Ireland. He'd been born with stenosis of the trachea, meaning his windpipe was too narrow to function properly. As a young boy, he'd been through several operations to fix this and had finally been fitted with a metal stent or tube to keep his airway open. But in late 2009, the metal stent stopped working, leaving Kieran in a critical state. At this point, his doctors felt they had exhausted all other options, so they called Paolo, hoping a stem cell transplant could save Kieran. In early 2010, Paolo flew to Kieran's bedside in London's Great Ormond Street Hospital. There, he prepared the 10-year-old for surgery, alongside Professor Martin Elliott, director of tracheal services at the hospital. Kieran's surgery, like Claudia's, seemed to be a success. And again, Paolo's face was all over the news. As far as most people knew, Paolo's success rate was sky high. It's no wonder that this rising star caught the eye of the best medical institution in the world. The Karolinska Institute is to medicine what Vienna is to opera. Located in Stockholm, Sweden, the Institute is where the creme de la creme of medicine come together to develop groundbreaking treatments. It is also the home of the Nobel Assembly, a group of professors which decides the winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine each year. The world expects the very best from the Institute, and one might assume the Institute expects the very best from its staff. It was the perfect home for an ambitious supersurgeon. And so, in September 2010, the Institute recruited Paolo Macchiarini. It was there that he would meet a promising young doctor called Oscar Simonsen. Born outside Stockholm, Sweden, Oscar Simonsen grew up with a fierce sense of right and wrong. Whenever he saw kids at school getting beat up on or made fun of, he never hesitated to jump in and tell the bullies to back off. It didn't hurt that he did martial arts after school, and both he and the bullies knew he'd win in a fight. As a young adult, Oscar took his strong ethical code with him to the Karolinska Institute, where he studied medicine in his home city of Stockholm. He chose to specialize in cardiothoracic surgery, learning about the heart, the lungs, and all of the other vital organs that keep them functioning. When he graduated in the mid-2000s, Oscar was offered a job at the Karolinska Institute. 
And there he learned that being a good doctor and researcher was only part of the job. Just like a pop star has to sweet-talk the press and do the chat show circuit before they get on stage, Oscar had to turn his attention to fundraising and bringing prestige to the university. It wasn't his favorite aspect of the role, but it was how they funded life-saving research. And he noticed that the better you were at charming investors with groundbreaking ideas, the more money the university would receive to fund your study. So when Paolo Macchiarini came along in September 2010, using magical buzzwords like stem cells and regenerative medicine, Oscar knew Karolinska was sure to receive millions of dollars from the Swedish Research Council and other public funders. Paolo fit this PR mold perfectly. With his nice shoes, pressed linen suit, his low, hypnotic voice. But to Oscar, something seemed off. The way Paolo described his surgery sounded more like a sales pitch than a medical procedure. And even more worrying, Oscar just couldn't understand how the surgery could possibly work. A trachea needed a strong blood supply, and that seemed impossible in an implant. Unusually for a doctor, Oscar had studied animal biology alongside medicine. So while Paolo started performing surgery on new patients at Karolinska, Oscar's first job under Paolo was in the lab, testing the surgery out on rats. This time, though, Paolo had changed tack. The implants the humans and rats were now receiving weren't real donor tracheas, as in Claudia's case. They were synthetic plastic ones. Oscar spent day after day in the windowless lab doing as Paolo asked him, cutting open the tiny bodies of rats, replacing their healthy tracheas with the synthetic versions. While Oscar worked, human patients were arriving at the hospital for their surgery. He thought it was strange that he was testing the surgery on animals at this stage of research. Surely this had been done before. Stranger still, why were they using synthetic tracheas if donor ones had worked so well for Claudia Castillo and 10-year-old Kieran Lynch? Before long, Oscar noticed a pattern. Soon after surgery, the rat's airways started to fail, making breathing almost impossible. The synthetic tracheas were not being accepted by their bodies, which meant his gut feeling had been correct. The treatment simply did not work. It was clear now that there had been little or no animal testing of this procedure. If this fate befell the rats, he was terrified of what might be happening to Paolo's human patients at the Karolinska Hospital. Oscar, who had spent more than a decade at the Institute, knew that his concerns would not be well received. After all, Oscar was just one mid-level medical doctor and Paolo was a celebrity surgeon. Who would listen to him? Luckily for Oscar, someone else was already questioning if Paolo was all he claimed to be. Nearly 800 miles away from Stockholm, in the city of Leuven, Belgium, a thoracic surgeon named Dr. Pierre Delara had heard about Paolo's arrival at Karolinska, and he was worried. Pierre had been following Paolo's meteoric rise, and he, like Oscar, 
couldn't understand how the transplants could possibly work, so he'd started digging. While the mainstream press had reported on the success of Claudia and Kieran's surgeries, there were other patients who had not made the news. Kaziah Shorten was 19 when Paola replaced her failing trachea with a donated one. She flew from her home in England to the Correggi Hospital in Florence, Italy for the operation in July 2010. Kaziah's surgery was long and grueling, and when she returned to the UK, she required almost constant medical care. As time passed and she failed to improve, Kaziah's implant was taken out, and after a painful few months of emergency surgeries, she passed away, surrounded by her family. Even less well-publicized were rumors that Paolo had performed the same surgery on as many as eight other patients in Russia, Spain, and Italy. Sources claimed that of these eight patients, seven had died soon after surgery. The eighth had had the transplant removed, but the damage had already been done. She was alive, but suffering horribly. Pierre believed that Paolo had suddenly switched to synthetic tracheas because he realized that the donor tracheas weren't working, but didn't want to lose his growing salary or fame. The synthetic tracheas were his Hail Mary, but Pierre knew that they were even more dangerous than the tracheas taken from real cadavers. Worse still, there were rumors that Paolo hadn't tested his treatment out on animals, before performing it on human patients. An unthinkable violation of medical ethics. Those pigs that Claudia had seen in Barcelona, it seems that they had not, as Claudia had assumed, received trachea transplants. Evidence suggests that the scars on their backs were the result of far less invasive tests. As far as Pierre was concerned, Paolo was using human beings as guinea pigs for his theories. The more the treatment failed, the more Paolo seemed to double down on his efforts. By now, as many as 10 people had gone under Paolo's knife, and Pierre was desperate to raise the alarm before he operated again. Pierre reached out to Karolinska's vice chancellor, Harriet Valberg Henriksen, by email. He claimed there was no evidence that the stem cells they were infusing into the tracheas did anything at all. In other words, he believed that Paolo's big claim was a lie. The vice chancellor's reply was short. She wrote, Your message should be directed to the Barcelona Hospital, the former working place of Paolo Macchiarini. It seemed she didn't think the claims about Paolo's past had anything to do with his future at the Karolinska Institute. Back in Stockholm, Oscar had moved out of the lab and into the hospital ward. There, he and his fellow doctors, Matthias Corbaccio, Thomas Fuchs, and Carl Henrik Grinimo, were starting to uncover the fate of Paolo's human victims. Paolo's first patient at Karolinska was a 36-year-old Eritrean geologist and father of two named Andamarium Beyene. His surgery seemed to go well at first. The second patient was 30-year-old Christopher Lyles. Christopher's family had raised $200,000 to fly him in from the U.S. He died fewer than five months after surgery. And it wasn't long before the body count crept even higher. 
In August 2012, Paolo welcomed 22-year-old Yassim Setir into his operating theater. After her grueling surgery, Yassim lay in her hospital bed day and night, while her airways produced so much excess mucus that at any given moment she was seconds away from drowning. Oscar and his colleagues had to clear her windpipe every four hours. Soon, she couldn't even talk. Oscar's colleague, Carl Henrik Grinimo, describes it this way. It's like someone keeping your head underwater until you almost suffocate to death. This is something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Things went from bad to worse when, in the fall of 2013, Yassim was joined by a familiar face, Andamariam Bayene, Paolo's first patient at Karolinska. Oscar was shocked to see him in such a bad way. He couldn't talk and, according to the doctors, smelled like he was rotting from the inside out. The transplanted trachea had not been accepted into the body and was, Oscar says, completely loose. Oscar knew now that his suspicions had been correct. Paolo's surgeries left his patients dying in agony, just like the rats. This was the last straw for Oscar and his fellow doctors. Paolo had now been performing his stem cell surgery for five years, and the outcomes were just getting worse. They decided it was time to confront him. In Paolo's spacious office at the Institute, Oscar's colleague Carl Henrik steeled himself before asking Paolo about his other patients, the ones that came after Claudia. What had become of them? Were they in the same state as Andamariam and Yassim? Were they even alive? Carl Henrik claims that Paolo, realizing that he was on to him, became angry. He told him to get out, promising him he would do everything in his power to make his life miserable, a promise he would keep. Shaken, the doctors searched for other, more sympathetic ears at Karolinska. But it wasn't just Paolo who was hell-bent on silencing them. In fact, the Institute had more reason than ever to stonewall Oscar and his colleagues. Plans were underway to establish a regenerative medicine research center in Hong Kong, with Paolo at the helm. And Karolinska was set to receive around $50 million for its part in it. Then there was talk of a government grant that could bring in millions more, paying for over a hundred of Paolo's experimental surgeries across Europe and Russia. Soon after they lodged their complaints, the young doctors were taken off the ward, away from their patients. They would no longer be witnesses to the aftermath of Paolo's surgeries. With the door slammed shut in their faces, Oscar and his colleagues had to find another way to stop Paolo, especially as he was still experimenting on patients in Russia, Great Britain, and the USA. The numbers were growing, and fatalities were rising. Time was of the essence. Oscar couldn't believe that no one else could see what they could, but unless they could find damning evidence that no one could ignore, there was little they could do to stop Paolo. They had a hunch that they could find a paper trail of lies in Paolo's patients' records, in his applications for funding, and in his requests for permission from ethical boards. As exiles from the study, it wasn't easy to get hold of the medical records they needed. 
They had to track down the patient's next of kin for permission. It took months, and when they finally opened the files and saw the extent of Paolo's actions, they were horrified. They discovered that Paolo had failed entirely to get clearance from Sweden's Human Ethical Review Board, or from the Medical Product Agency, Sweden's version of the Food and Drug Administration. At every stage, he had simply used his fame to get through red tape. While this was extremely concerning at the very least, it was what Oscar discovered next that made his blood boil. The notes suggested that the operations had been emergency surgeries, that every one of the patients had been at death's door, that their only hope was a trachea transplant. But all four whistleblowers claim that this wasn't true. Although Andamariam had a tumor on his windpipe that gave him a mild cough, he was active and in good spirits when he arrived in Stockholm. He even took a holiday to visit friends days before his planned surgery. Christopher, the second patient, had a cancerous tumor too, but felt pretty normal. He wasn't struggling to breathe, and his surgery was planned months in advance, just like Yassim's. She hadn't even had cancer and wasn't classed as terminal at all. It seemed that all of the patients had had other options, short-term or longer-term treatments that would have given them more time without the torture of Paolo's transplants. The compassionate use loophole had been stretched way beyond the acceptable. Legally, Oscar's report could only focus on the patients he had treated at Karolinska. But some further digging revealed what Professor Pierre Delara had discovered, that seven of Paolo's transplant patients had died before he arrived at Karolinska. They also learned that since joining the Institute, Paolo had performed the surgery on four other patients outside Sweden, including a two-year-old girl who had died three months after the operation. There was evidence to suggest that Paolo had now used 17 patients as guinea pigs for his new trachea treatment, whether they needed it or not. And of the 17, it seemed that as many as 12 were already dead. The rest were either dying or had had the transplants removed. In 2014, the four whistleblowers handed their evidence over to the president of the Karolinska Institute. 500 pages alleging that the treatment Paolo was pushing was nowhere near developed enough to be used on living human subjects, and that he didn't seem to care. They felt the university would finally be forced to do something. Surely Paolo would be suspended immediately, if not fired or arrested. Instead, the police were called on Oscar and his three colleagues. Now, back to the story. At the Stockholm police station, Oscar and his colleagues were interrogated for many hours. They discovered that it was Johan Brat, the chief medical officer at Karolinska, who had reported them to the police under pressure from other senior members at the Institute. His report accused them of breaking the law by accessing patients' private medical records and sharing private data. Oscar realized that if they were found guilty of what Karolinska was accusing them of, they could be given jail sentences. 
they could be locked away from their families, while Paolo was free to continue his experimental surgeries unchecked. He thought back over everything that had happened. So many people were desperate to support Paolo. Was it possible that it was Oscar and his colleagues who were in the wrong? When Oscar had mentioned his concerns about Paolo to other doctors, they often dismissed his fears. Just look at liver transplants, they said. Thousands of people are only alive today because someone took a chance. It was true. In 1963, Dr. Tom Starzl attempted the world's first human liver transplant, and things did not go as expected. He had spent years perfecting the procedure on dogs, but his first human patient, a three-year-old boy, bled to death during surgery. Despite this, Starzl kept trying, even though every one of his next six patients died within 23 days of the surgery. But Starzl believed in the science and kept on going. In 1967, after four years of failure, Starzl performed the world's first successful liver transplant. And the rest is history. Was it possible, thought Oscar, that Paolo was simply doing what Starzl had done and that he was the one standing in the way of scientific progress? No. Oscar knew in his heart that Paolo simply was not acting ethically. Doctors should not risk the well-being of one patient in the hopes that it will save another. After several tense hours, the police told the whistleblowers they could find no wrongdoing on their part. While they had accessed patient records, they also had consent from the patients or their families. Oscar and his colleagues were freed, but they regarded this as a warning shot from Karolinska. Back off or pay the price. Over the next few months, glimmers of hope were followed by crushing disappointments. They were delighted when a damning article supporting their cause was published in the New York Times. Under public pressure, the university finally agreed to allow an external investigation into Paolo's research. The whistleblowers were happier still when Karolinska embarked on an internal investigation too. While it seemed that justice was finally being done, the young doctors soon found themselves back in the firing line. Paolo made good on his promise to make Carl Henrik's life miserable when he counter-accused him of scientific misconduct in a grant application they had worked on together. Karolinska supported Paolo every step of the way. They opened an investigation into Carl Henrik that discredited him for years to come, making it difficult for him to secure research funding. Oscar was targeted, too. Before he was blacklisted, he'd been offered a prestigious residency at Karolinska that he was looking forward to starting. It would be the high point of his career so far. But before he was due to start, the Institute withdrew the job offer. For Oscar, then in his mid-30s, this was a major professional setback. On top of all this, the university chose to ignore the external investigation's findings that Paolo had falsified data. They cleared Paolo of all misconduct and even held a press conference to show their support for him, warning the whistleblowers not to attend. What Oscar didn't realize was that someone else, 
someone far from the Karolinska Institute, also knew that Paolo was a fraud and was equally devastated by his behavior. American TV producer Benita Alexander had first met the 55-year-old Paolo Macchiarini in February 2013 while making a feature about his game-changing transplant treatment for NBC News. The two had fallen in love in a whirlwind romance. Paolo seduced 47-year-old single mom Benita with the promise of a lavish lifestyle among the elite whisking her off to dinner in Paris and breakfast in the Caribbean. By 2014, even as his career was starting to come under scrutiny, Paolo had proposed, and the two were planning a glamorous wedding. Paolo told Benita that Pope Francis was a patient of his, and had offered to officiate their ceremony himself at a papal estate outside Rome. He'd invited the Clintons, the Obamas, and Elton John, and had asked opera singer Andrea Bocelli to perform. Benita couldn't believe her luck. In the summer of 2015, she quit her job and took her daughter out of school in the U.S. in anticipation of the wedding and the move to Paolo's home. Then, two months before the wedding date, Benita learned from a friend that the Pope would be in South America at the time of their wedding. Immediately, this set off alarm bells and she started digging into Paolo's background. Benita quickly discovered that her fiancé was already married and in relationships with several other women. The entire wedding story was just that, a story. Paolo, the serial liar, had struck again. It didn't take long for her to discover more inconsistencies and discrepancies in his background and she reached out to the Karolinska Institute with her concerns. Like Oscar, she was dismayed to see their press conference supporting him. Unlike Oscar and his colleagues, though, Benita had a wide network of connections in the American press. If the Karolinska Institute wasn't going to expose Paolo, then she would have to do it herself. In February 2016, Benita went public with an expose in Vanity Fair magazine. The story captured the imagination of the public and did more to discredit Paolo than any number of whistleblower reports had done so far. Just a week later, celebrated Swedish director Bo Lindquist released a TV documentary about Paolo. It featured interviews with Oscar and his fellow whistleblowers and investigated the fate of Paolo's patients. It seemed that even his living patients, Claudia and Kieran, had by now had their original transplants removed after years of pain and discomfort. Claudia had to have her left lung taken out after all. With this one-two punch, the public sat up, took notice, and became outraged. Under pressure from all sides, the Institute could no longer turn a blind eye. Finally, In March 2016, they fired Paolo and began another investigation into his work to decide whether he should be tried, this time for manslaughter. Oscar was elated. Not only had Paolo been stopped, but now, after years of feeling like he and his colleagues were the only ones who saw the truth, the world agreed with him. With Paolo finally in the firing line, 
The public now turned their attention to the Karolinska board members who had hired him and stood by him. One by one, they resigned under the pressure, losing their prestigious titles and seats on the Nobel Assembly. They were replaced with a fresh batch of board members, sending a message to the public. Karolinska was, once again, a trustworthy bastion of science. If this were a Hollywood movie, perhaps the story would end here. With Paolo in disgrace, and Oscar welcomed back into the great halls of Karolinska as a hero. But this isn't a movie. In fact, in October 2017, Swedish prosecutors announced that they would not be pursuing manslaughter charges against Paolo. The investigation ruled that no one could prove that Paolo's actions had led to the deaths of his patients. Oscar remembers opening the investigation report, his heart sinking as he read that Paolo had only been found guilty of misconduct, a mere slap on the wrist. Then he saw with disbelief that his colleague Carl Henrik had also been found guilty of misconduct, and that Oscar himself had been labeled blameworthy. Karolinska argued that because they had been part of Paolo's team, they too should be held accountable for what happened, and they weren't even allowed to appeal. With the young doctor's careers at risk once more, Paolo seemed like a cat with nine lives. He continued his research, publishing more papers on his magical stem cell treatment at universities in Russia and Turkey. All their hard work seemed to be for naught. Oscar tried to let go and move on. He got a new job at Uppsala University, north of Stockholm, leaving behind the trauma of Karolinska. He spends his days operating on patients, running a COVID-19 study, and doing important research into heart disease and lung cancer. But the past won't let him go. Now in his 40s, Oscar says he's found it difficult to further his career, with his name perpetually linked to the Macchiarini controversy at the Karolinska Institute, and he still struggles to get grants for his projects. As Oscar puts it, Karolinska hunts whistleblowers hard and for life. In September 2020, the winds finally started to change. Swedish prosecutors announced that they were charging Paolo with the aggravated assault of the three Karolinska patients. The trial will be held in Sweden in 2022. At the time of recording, no charges have been filed relating to his surgeries in Italy, Russia, Spain, and the USA. Perhaps once the families of Paolo's patients find out what really went on, the whistleblowers will be able to repair their reputations. Oscar, at least, can feel that his efforts were worthwhile, just as they were when he stood up to bullies in the schoolyard. Today... At home, with his wife and young daughter, Oscar is hopeful about the future. His daughter, he claims, is growing up to be just as feisty as he is. If she, too, has to blow the whistle one day, he'll be with her every step of the way. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies 
and the people who expose them. For more information on Paolo Macchiarini, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Biggest Lie by Pierre Delara extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Alice Homewood and Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. Editorial support from Mike Jemson. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez.